Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Believe it or not, I think this is podcast number 70 in our series, so we're really racking them up. It's a good indication of the progress that we're making as we work through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, reading either one a day for those who are able to, or uh, maybe just reading one a week, a featured sermon, which is also what we look at when we do this podcast. Spurgeon was born in 1834 and he died in 1892. He was an English particular or Calvinistic Baptist, often known as the Prince of Preachers. And it's not Spurgeon so much as Spurgeon's preaching of Christ that we want to look at as we study these sermons, both so that we can see Christ more clearly for ourselves and so that we can learn from Spurgeon how better to preach Christ in our own day, not just copying him, not just aping him mindlessly, but learning from him how to see and speak of Christ as he's made known in all the scriptures. This week we're reading sermons 465 to 471 and uh, we are looking particularly at sermon 469 which is from Jonah chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 that Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? And that's Spurgeon's title for his sermon. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And Spurgeon's going to point that text, that phrase in particular, at a number of different targets in the course of his sermon. He begins with a few uh, sparky thoughts, uh, wants us to see in Jonah's heavy slumber the effect of sin, the slumbering effects of the flesh, and one of the devices of Satan. So with regard to the first, he says, No noxious drug can give such deadly sleep as sin. The body never knows so dread a sleep when under the influence of opiates, as the soul does when sin has cast it into a slumber. Then he reminds us that if we sacrifice to our own lusts, we're quite certain to get the sacrifices by robbing God's altar. The body shall not have pleasure in sin, except the soul shall soon be in a state of misery and decay. And then one of the devices of Satan, he seeks to lull God's prophets into slumber, for he knows that dumb dogs that are given to sleep will never do any very great injury to his cause. He fears the wakeful watchman, but he's happy when the watchmen are in a slumber. And so says Spurgeon, because of the the effects of sin and the flesh and the devil in lulling us into dullness and sleepiness, we need to be delivered from Jonah's condition. And we we need that the shipmaster then should come round and shake us by the shoulders or even strike us with the rope, lest we should sleep as do others and so fall into spiritual decays. And so, says Spurgeon, having introduced his topic in this way, I'm going to act the shipmaster's part. And as captain of this vessel, I'm going to cry to slumbering saints and to sleepy sinners. What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call upon your God. So this is a a two-pronged sermon, the same text directed first to the slumbering saint and secondly to the sleepy sinner. And he is uh, quite forceful and direct in both regards. So then, with regard to the slumbering saints, the sleeping saints, those poor Jonas who are God's true servants but are yet asleep, 
He says, to break their bands asunder, we must remind them first that the ship is in danger. So you already get the sense here that Spurgeon is going to be using this metaphor for the whole sermon. This is what's going to carry him along and he'll slide into and out of it a little bit. But this is the point. It was not good for Jonah to sleep when all hands were at the pumps. When every other man was doing his best to lighten the ship and save her if possible, it was a shame that Jonah should be asleep. And so he says, member of this church, professed Christian, is it not a shame, do you think, to be slumbering, to be dilatory in your master's service, service when the souls of men are in danger? To be, to be slow, to be careless, to be thoughtless, to be not ready, not on your toes, ready to act. This is his concern. He says the world that we live in is perishing for lack of knowledge. Here we have them at our doors crying for the bread of heaven and how many there are that hoard their substance for avarice, give their time to vanity, devote their talents to self-aggrandisement and centre their thoughts only on the world or the flesh. He says if you could see, if you could grasp the horror of hell that those without Christ are going to, would you still be holding on to your, your financial wealth? Would you still be devoting your time to emptiness? Would you still be giving your talents to advancing yourself? Would you only be thinking about the world or the flesh? Oh, he says, that God would give some of you the sight of a lost soul. Oh, that you could see it in its naked condition when it steps behind the curtain into the world unknown. And Spurgeon is a man who's meditated then on eternity, who's thought long and hard about heaven and hell. And these realities hang before the man. Oh, that you could behold its horrors when it first discovers itself exposed to the anger of Almighty God. So he says, the ship's in danger. There are people who are perishing and you and I then need to be awakened that we may respond rightly. But there's a second thing that he says and it is that the, the halcyon times in which we live. Men are earnestly craving for our prayers. Men are longing for deliverance. Now, this is where we have to say, and it's important that we remember, we're not Spurgeon or little Spurgeons, and we're not living in 19th century London. He says, in these days, men are longing for deliverance. There was never an age like this for hearing sermons. It's a hearing age, a time when men are willing to listen, when they're only too glad to hear the word faithfully preached. I say not that it is so in every place, but certainly it is in London. Now, this, I think, helps us to understand how we sometimes need to take Spurgeon's warnings and exhortations. When he says, for example, if you're not seeing anybody saved, there's something wrong with your preaching. And he says here, if your, your chapel isn't full, what are you doing wrong? Why? Because at this point in time, if you preach the gospel, the people throng to listen. So should you sleep now? Should you be idle now? Ministers of Christ, shall we relax our efforts or shall we be dull and cold about immortal souls when every omen urges us to zealous labour? Now we can have two responses to this, at least two. One is we can say, well, we don't live in such halcyon times. We don't live in such blessed seasons. We don't have people thronging to listen to anybody who actually preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. So 
we don't need to take account of this. Uh, it's not like that anymore. We can switch off or we don't need to or we, we shouldn't even try and make any of these efforts. Or we can say, actually, because men are not longing for deliverance, because everybody else is asleep, because no one else is crying out for mercy, we need to be all the more active and endeavouring. And I find myself rebuked by this because I see myself painted here as a sleepy saint. Further, let us remember that as Jonah was the only man in the ship whose prayer could be of any avail, so the children of God are the only men who can do any real spiritual service to this perishing world. Why? Because we know the true and living God. The salvation of the world, says Spurgeon, under God lies with the church. Christ has finished the atonement, the church finishes the ingathering. Christ has paid the purchase price and completed redemption by blood. The church seeks the Holy Spirit fully to redeem the world by power. This generation under God, and he, he keeps making that little qualification, but it's a big one, it looks short in words, but big in substance, under God, this generation must have salvation given to it through our ministry, our evangelists, our Sunday schools, our missionaries, our preachings and teachings. And if we do it not, the world will not stay or stop from perishing while we are stopping from laboring. So Spurgeon is, is very conscious here. And we need to be as well, even though it's not the same condition spiritually in our society for most of us, we also need to reckon with the fact that we have the word of life. And Spurgeon's good here. He's a, he's a real churchman, yeah, small c churchman. We must never think of leaving Christ's work to societies. They've had their day and have supplied a great lack created by the loss of the apostolic spirit, but it is now the time that the aroused and revived church should assume her true position and do her own work. Fifty years or more, missionary societies have been trying to convert the world, and albeit that many souls have been saved, and therefore the effort has been far from useless, yet compared with apostolic success, they have been a miserable failure. Now, how many churches and how many Christians are content to give a little money, or even a lot of money, to, to put their best people in the hands of the missionary societies? And Spurgeon's saying, why aren't the churches doing the work? The church is the, the one institution which Christ has appointed for taking the good news into all the world. Why are we devolving that privilege and that responsibility? In my inmost soul, he says, I believe that the Lord is not with the most of our foreign missions. And why? Because God never called the missionary societies to the work. He never bade the missionary society become the spouse of Christ and bring forth sons unto him. His offspring, his seed which shall reward him for his soul's travail, must spring from his own well-beloved bride. Much as I value all good societies, I cannot hesitate to declare that the church is the ordained agent and that all beside is human and derives authority only from man. So the Lord works not by committees, but by his churches. The church must do her own work. And when all our churches are thoroughly aroused to this fact, and every congregation shall send out its own men, pray for their own men, and support their own men, we shall see greater things than we have ever dreamed of. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. I think 
at least as much, if not more so today, we need to hear that fairly stark warning that we are, as churches, called to this business of lively gospel endeavour. And we cannot slope our shoulders and allow somebody else or presume that anybody else will do work that God has ordained the church to do. And now Spurgeon speaks very specifically to members of this church at the tabernacle, as may have been up to this point careless about this good work. Remember, you're in the ship yourself. You enjoy its privileges and you ought to take your quota of the work. Spurgeon understands that if you're a a part of a healthy gospel church, then your privileges, your opportunities, your duties, your responsibilities, your liabilities all belong in the same package. And if you're enjoying the benefits of the congregational life, so you ought to be investing in the congregational life. He says the work of the kingdom is the work of a soldier, and we can't be lying under a tree enjoying the sunshine or or resting in the shade. And he says, if I, your minister, should ever have it as my unhappy lot to stand upon a dead church to preach the word, I cannot expect anything but the most disastrous defeat. Oh, friends, how much of a warning is that to us? A minister standing upon a dead church. Let but the minister of God be supported by a living church. Let him be borne up in the arms of a loving and a praying people, and who can stand against his word? Nothing but victory must follow. But let us have dead, careless deacons and elders. Let us have idle church members, and the omens are against us, and the result of our battle must be a terrible calamity. There is more than we think for of mischief done by the presence of one unconverted person in a church. You've got a membership, says Spurgeon, and you've got dead people, even one dead. Then it's going to bring infection. It's going to bring unhealthiness. It's going to bring lethargy. It's going to drag down the whole body. Now, there is nothing in Christ's real church that is dead. And if ever dead substances get into the church, they will not lie there still and quiet. But the church shall be aware of it in her every nerve and pore and she shall soon begin to exert her strength and vitality to expel the foreign substance from her living body. Would that this energy could be spared for other works, for the saving of souls for Jesus. Here again is that healthy churchmanship, that there is no space for death in the living body of Jesus Christ. But when there are mere professors, that is, people who are not genuinely converted, either outright hypocrites or people who are ignorant and confused, when they are in the body, dead as if alive, then they will be dragging down the health of the body and the energy that the body should be giving to reaching out is going to be devoted to keeping itself healthy and dealing with this sickness within it. And so here's Spurgeon's gathered church notion, that it's a gathering of believers men and women who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who are alive by union with him, who have been baptized in testimony of their belonging to him, have joined together in conviction that they labor together for the glory of God in the earth. And now he says, I address some pretended Christians here who are not alive to God. Let me beg of them to relinquish their profession or if not, to make it real. 
Don't pretend to be what you're not, says Spurgeon. We need to understand what it means for a church to really be a church and what it means for a Christian to be a really be a Christian. And if you're not one, then you need to stop pretending that you are one and come to Jesus Christ. Because if you're a part of the church, then you ought to be working and serving. Do not lie unto God, he says, for in so doing you injure the church of which you are a part and which, since you are a part of it, it is your duty to serve in. I simply leave it there. That's something that each of us, I think, need to consider carefully. And so he's moving on quickly. The honour of our God is also mightily concerned in every Jonah being aroused. The honour of Christ his doctrines, his blood, his person, the dignity of everything that we hold sacred rests in the eyes of the sons of men in the keeping of the church. How does the world know what Christianity is like? How does the world measure Christ Jesus? It is by the testimony of those who claim that they are Christ's. And so if we are neglectful, careless, sleepy, dull and silent, men will esteem Christ lightly. That's what we need to take account of. And so he's asking, do you want this church to become a stink in the nostrils of the wicked? We can do that. When they followed us with their hootings and jeers, we've borne patiently and have been too glad to bear every slander if we might arouse a, a lazy generation from their lethargy. We've seen success follow our efforts. And he asks, are we now going to stop? Are we now going to slow down? Well, for most of us, the question isn't, we've been doing so much and now we're slowing down. Perhaps the question for us is, what have we been doing? Isn't the time to rouse from our sleep, perhaps for the first time, and to get on with the work? Spurgeon says, we are not asleep, say some self-satisfied people. And he cheerfully admits that as a body, we are not given to slumber. But I'm not sure, he says, that this is true of you all. Here's his close, personal pastoral dealing. You can, you can drift off, says Spurgeon. People can weep in their sleep. People can cry out in their sleep. And he says, what, what then is a really awake person? A really awake person is someone who has a thorough consciousness of the reality of spiritual things. Men of stern resolution. No Christian is awake, says Spurgeon, unless he steadfastly determines to serve his God. Come fair, come foul. I would have you, young Christians, dedicated to God's service. And again, you're not awake unless you're moved by a passionate earnestness to win souls for Christ. Brothers and sisters, how many of us and how many of our churches are asleep? A man who labours and sees no success attending his efforts may be awake if he mourns and groans and sighs before God, but an idle preacher, a preacher without converts, a Sunday school teacher in whose class there's no conversion, a man who never saw a sinner brought to Christ by his means and yet is happy and content, that man is asleep. Let him take heed that he sleep not the sleep of death. I had sooner the Lord would send claps of thunder to this church in the form of heavy trials and troubles, the removal of your pastor, the taking away of our best men, the riot of mobs, the slander of the press, than that we should continue to multiply and increase and should make this place a huge dormitory wherein we snored out God's praises in our sleep. 
instead of an armory where we sharpen our swords on the Sabbath to go out the whole week long contending for God and for the good of men. I don't know if many people today actually would like Spurgeon as their pastor and preacher. So many of us say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? But you hear a sermon like this, and here's this faithful man, and he's getting under the skin of God's people, and he's calling upon us to consider, are you what you think you are? Are you in the state which you think you are in? He, he's, he wants us to consider whether or not we're re- conscious of real spiritual things, whether or not we're earnest to win souls for Christ. He says, in the absence of those things, you have to ask whether you're at all awake, even spiritually awake, let alone uh, spiritually alert. Are you truly a Christian if you don't have any of these concerns and if they're not being worked out, not just in a oh, I wish it were otherwise, but in a I will serve God in my generation sense. So he says, I do not mean that there are any in the congregation asleep with their eyes shut, but if they're asleep with their hearts, it's probable that what I say may do good to those who are awake. But those who are asleep and given to slumber will say, basically, I'll roll over, I'm okay, and I will sleep on. What a challenge then, to God's people. And then lastly and briefly, that second point, and it's much briefer, I want to address myself to slumbering sinners. He wants to stir them up, to disturb their quiet by remarking first that your sleep is utterly incomprehensible to those who are awake. He says when you know what your real state is, you won't be able to sleep. He says you're a sinner. You're a sinner and that's what needs to stir you. The sinner is one whom God must smite. Yes, he bears with you long, but he must smite you soon. Remember too, you're mortal. Time eats away your life and hurries you to your grave. The sun doesn't stand still for you. Speeding on his everlasting course, day after day, bears you to the tomb. Every tick of the clock over there sounds as the footfall of approaching death. Then he says, remember you're also an immortal Not only that you must die in this world, but that you have a soul that shall never die. And this makes it the more grievous that you should sleep. Forever, forever, forever you shall live when you die. A deep without a bottom and without a shore, this eternity. And then, considering that you're immortal, remember that there is a heaven and that that may be gained by those who come to Jesus Christ and consider that there is a hell and you will lose heaven and only gain hell if you will not come to him. I marvel, he says, that I can preach about these awful themes without an agony of earnestness. These are no trifles, no themes for an orator's idle hour or a hearer's curious ear. These matters may well make both the ears of him that heareth thereof to tingle. Oh, that they might make your hearts tremble before the Lord, that with contrition you might seek his face. He says, I want to press this matter home again. I am sure that you frivolous, thoughtless men and women can give no justifiable cause for carelessness. Maybe you say, I don't believe there's this danger. I reply to you, you do believe it. You know you do. You know it, and at the bayonet point I charge home upon you. He says, you really do know. You have that in you which makes you know that there is a God. Now, here is 
uh, Spurgeon's understanding of the human nature. He doesn't try first and foremost to reason people into responding to Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say he's unreasonable, but he preaches to the conscience. He doesn't just deal with man with regard to his intellectual ability. And I think too often today we forget that the mind is blind, that the, that the eyes of man are shut to the truth. And well, our target is the conscience of man, because man does have some sense of right and wrong, some sense of accountability. You know then, says the preacher, that these things are not fictions nor falsehoods. Sinner, you stand today over the mouth of hell upon a single plank, and the plank is rotten. You're swinging over the jaws of perdition by a solitary rope, and the strands of the rope are snapping. You're in danger now. Somebody else might say, well, we might as well sleep. There's no hope for us. That's not so, says Spurgeon. You cannot say that thanks to God. You know that God is ready to save. You know that Christ's arms are open to receive the sinner. And then we remind you again, as we cannot understand your sleep and as you cannot justify it, you need to remember that your sleep will soon end in ruin. How I fear, and I think, he says, I have just cause to fear, that there are some of you who will sit in this tabernacle till you die and will go from this place to hell with my voice of entreaty ringing in your ears. Now and then, he says, you may murmur in your sleep. Oh, the preacher is too earnest. He's too strong. He makes too much noise about these melancholy matters. He's too prone to dwell upon these hard threatenings. And you, you roll over, as it were, and you don't bother uh, to, to listen to what's going on. And again, there are people who are in our congregations today who are in this state. The preacher who's in earnest, the preacher who's striving, the preacher who points to the soul, the preacher who gets under the skin. What does he think he's doing? What right does he have to speak to us like that? Or he's just blowing off some steam. Let's just ignore him and maybe he'll calm down when he gets a bit older or a bit colder or he starts realizing that that's not the kind of people we are. No, whether we're Christians or unbelievers, we need to hear and heed the things that are spoken to us by these men of God. And lastly, says Spurgeon then, if you're fully awake, do your best to awaken others. If you should save a soul through being too zealous, neither your master nor the saved one will blame you for it, and at least in heaven it will never be a source of regret to you that you were too active and too diligent. Maybe if I were looking at you face to face, I'd say, put your hand up if you're too earnest, too zealous, too active, too diligent. And I doubt there's a single one of us who would dare to raise our hand and say, I've overdone it in the service of Christ out of concern for souls. And so let's take to heed these stirring exhortations. Perhaps you're listening to this today and you're one in that latter category, the sleepy sinner, and you need to grasp just how dangerous is your condition and you need to flee to Jesus Christ but I suspect that perhaps the more of us are in that first state, the slumbering saint, the sleepy Christian, God's servant, but dull and lethargic. And we need to understand that this, perhaps even more than Spurgeon's day, 
is a day when every sleeper needs to be roused, when everyone who really is a Christian needs to be at the pump, when everyone who calls themselves a Christian needs to ask, do I have the marks of a lively, living, wakeful man or woman? And will I serve accordingly in and out from the church of Jesus Christ that by God's grace we might see others who are being brought in? Well, may God help us to take these things to heart and may God help us to use such sermons as these for our own soul's good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Next week, God willing, it's sermons 472 to 478 and sermon 475 is our featured sermon, 475, and the title for that is Self-Delusion. And that is uh, another pointed sermon, peeling back the layers of the soul, and then we'll come on, God willing, in the future to other uh, also representative sermons. But it's important for us to see the breadth and the depth of Spurgeon's scriptural ministry. He'll leave nothing out that he finds in the word of God, by and large, and he'll bring it to bear closely upon all our souls. And I trust that it will continue to do us good today for the honour of our Christ and Saviour. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll come again and hear us as we continue on listening to these sermons from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.